0: Getting In is sponsored by Audible.com. Audible.com has more than 180,000 audiobooks and spoken word products. Just for being a Getting In listener, you can get a free audiobook of your choice by going to www.audible.com college. From Slate and Panoply, this is Getting In, a podcast series about the path to college. I'm your host, Julie Lithcott-Hames. Today, we'll be answering more of your listener questions. And back again with me this week is Park Muth. Welcome back, Park.
1: Thanks so much, Julie. It's great to be here.
0: And listeners, if you missed our announcement last time, we want to let you know that the podcast is ending, wrapping up very soon. There's just one more episode of Getting In after the one you're listening to right now. But we want to try to help as many listeners as possible. Park, are you up for a speed round of questions?
1: I can try and do as well as I can, as quickly as I can.
0: Excellent. Okay, our first question is a voice memo from Angela, a mom in Oregon. Hi, my name is Angela Patrick, and my twin daughters are high school freshmen. We live in Portland, Oregon. I was recently talking with some friends on the East Coast, and they brought my attention to the requirement of some schools for SAT subject tests. They let me know many schools require at least two SAT subject tests, and that students may want to take these tests directly after they take certain classes, which in some cases could be sophomore or even freshman year. Could you talk about how to know which colleges require SAT subject tests? To what extent students tend to do extra tutoring outside of school to prepare for such tests? And should students take certain tests early in high school as freshmen or sophomores? Thank you very much. Park, what do you think?
1: Well, she's asked a series of really good questions. One thing she needs to understand is uh, there are actually not that many schools that require SAT-2 subject tests anymore. There are a number of schools that suggest students may take them. And I have to say that schools that suggest you do something – do an interview or do almost anything else, it's probably in your best interest to try and do them if you can. So I would encourage students, even if they're not required, if a particular college or university suggests they do them, they should put that on their li- to do list. As far as preparation, I don't see that many students taking an SAT subject test in grade 9 unless they've just done remarkably well in a class. And that's pretty true of grade 10. I do see a lot of students in grade 11 in May or June taking SAT2 subject tests and then taking them again um, or a different set of those tests in the senior year, typically in October and November. The schools which look most carefully at SAT2 subject tests tend to be the most selective schools. Mm-hmm. There's actually a fair amount of information out there that say the SAT-2 subject tests are better predictors than the SAT-1 or the ACT. So Mm. some schools pay a lot of attention to that, but there's also an understanding that it costs a lot of money to take these tests. So especially low-income kids may not take them, but still will be given serious consideration when they apply.
0: You know, I want to add here, I've got a kid who's a science guy, and um, I think you know, in his junior year here in the spring, he's got the AP test, the test in his AP bio class. So what I mean is the the in-class test, the AP exam, the SAT-2 bio test. It's like, good Lord, how many tests does this kid need to take to demonstrate he understands biology really well? Um can you just give us a brief sense of, like, what's to a college, what's the difference between, say, doing really well on the AP biotest versus doing really well on the SAT subject biotest?
1: Well, Julie, I'm really glad you brought that up. I would think most schools look more carefully at the AP because the AP is supposed to be a college-level class, whereas the SAT 2 is a subject test that's basically looking to see how you're doing in high school-based subjects. So an AP Score of four and five tends to stand out better than a good score on an SAT2 subject test.
0: Okay. I wish I'd asked you that question before my kid took both. All right. I mean, but listeners, I'm telling you this because it's like, here I am. I tend to know more about this stuff than the average parent, and I still find it perplexing and confusing. And, you know, you want to try to make sure your kid is doing what they're supposed to be doing. Um, but I think there's a big difference between what they have to do and what they feel impelled to do because, quote-unquote, everyone's doing all of it. So I think it's important to search for like what is actually required and get some clarity on that. So thanks, Park, for that. Okay. We've been getting a lot of questions like this one from Allison, a mom in Virginia, who wonders about the true value of AP test scores. My son is a freshman in high school in Arlington, Virginia, and is currently taking
1: AP World History. If we don't necessarily care that he gets college credit for the course, Does his score on the AP exam matter to the colleges to which he applies? Do they see his score, or do they only see his grade in the
0: class? Should we have signed him up for a test prep? Park, what do you think? I realize this is very similar to the question I just asked you, but there's a little extra here.
1: Well, AP is a different set of testing that students can take either by being in an AP class, or there are actually some students that self-study for APs. Now, why would a student want to take these? Well, the truth is AP testing is something that a lot of highly selective schools expect, and they are purportedly college-level classes. Now, there are a lot of faculty that don't agree with that, and there are a few schools that are no longer giving credit for AP, but as was said in the question, that's really not an issue. And frankly, there are a lot of students that come in with AB credit, but they don't use it to graduate early. In other words, they want their four years, even though they could probably graduate in three or in some occasions two years. So it's not so much about getting the credit, it's about getting in. And many schools say they want to see students taking the most rigorous courses they can. And so students perceive that to be AP courses. Now, we've talked a little bit about the Turning the Tide report that came out of Harvard in January, which says students shouldn't be piling on the APs. Now, that's a great sentiment, and I would agree with it, except how are you going to evaluate two students that are pretty similar? One has 10 APs and the other has three APs, but they're doing similar activities, they have similar recommendations. You're probably going to give the edge... To the student that has more APs i don't see how you can get around it it's a zero sum game for these highly selective schools and having a great academic program does stand out even though it doesn't necessarily predict that the student's going to be any better in the classroom when they arrive on campus
0: you know it's park just by using that example of 3 APs versus 10 is a reminder of the fact that across the country, school by school, the expectations are so different. You know, colleges evaluate you within the context of the high school you attend. And it is true that there are some high schools where kids are taking 10 APs. But when I go out on my book tour and and I ask people, you know, what's the number of AP tests? How many APs is a highly motivated student trying to get into a highly selective college? How many APs is that student taking? And I hear different answers wherever I go. And in some places they say 10. And in some places they say four. And I think, gosh, this is not necessarily fair. Who, you know, that kid who's living in a place where 10 SATs is expected? Like, what? In some sense, it's the upside, the great opportunity, but also the downside of being in a community where somehow that degree of college prep study take undertaken in high school has come to be the norm. So, Park, the mom is saying, do they need to see his score? Do they see his score? Do they only see the grade in the class? Or do they also see the test? Is seeing the score on the AP test more valuable or less valuable than the grade slash score the kid gets in the actual coursework? Help us understand that.
1: Well, schools ask for the results of testing, and they ask students to report their AP scores. Some students are strategic about that. If you took an AP and you got a score of one, you may not want to submit that because that's a really low score. Mm -hmm. Uh, So at the same time, I think it's easier as a reader to look at AP scores and see a four and five and say that's good. It's very unlikely that a student taking an AP test getting a four or five, who's going to get a C or lower in the in the class itself. I mean, there's so much grade inflation now that everyone who applies to these selective schools pretty much has A's and a few B's. And so if a student gets a really low grade, but then has a high AP score, that raises some red flags. So generally speaking, I would say the emphasis on admission readers. They're certainly going to look at both, but high scores on the AP will certainly help with the admission process. Okay, thanks.
0: And we got these two tweets from Will Vincent, a biology teacher in Switzerland. Here's the first one.
1: Do students need to submit all of their SAT or ACT scores if they've taken the tests
0: multiple times? Park, what's the right answer here?
1: Well, here we go with the typical answer we've had on this show so many times, which is it depends. Yeah. There are many schools that allow you to superscore. By superscore, that means you can submit the top score from numerous test dates. But there are a few schools that require you to submit all scores. And if you go on to the school's webpage when you're filling out the application or on the common application, they will make it clear In addition, there are more and more schools that are test optional. You don't have to even submit any test scores to some of those schools. So there are more and more, I guess, opportunities and options out there for students. So there's not a single answer uh, to that question at this point.
0: Okay, thanks. And for listeners interested in that test optional, I'll just remind you, fairtest.org We'll offer you a list of the 800-plus colleges and universities that are test-flexible or test-optional. All right. And here's Will's second tweet. Love the podcast. Can you offer any advice to students applying to the U.S. from other countries? Park, what's your tweet-like answer?
1: Schools are looking for global citizens, for students who can bring their experience and backgrounds to the classroom, to the dorms, um, to their activities. So... People applying from outside the U.S. have the opportunity on essays and potentially through recommendations and activities to demonstrate that they, they can bring a kind of diversity to the school that maybe not a lot of other students can.
0: All right. And our last question is from Jack, a student in Washington State. Hi, my name is Jack,
1: and I'm from Washington. I'm wondering,
0: is volunteering really all that important? How important is volunteering compared to, say, another extracurricular that I'm doing in my field that I want to pursue? We followed up with Jack for clarification. The field he wants to pursue is computer science. Park, what are your thoughts here?
1: Well, Jack, you've asked a really good question, and if you read some of the things that are out there now, and I made reference to this report before called Turning the Tide, you'll see that a lot of schools are interested in students who care about their community, about their families, about the world they live in. And the report emphasizes that admissions offices should be looking for students who are involved at some level in their community. Now, how is that going to translate in concrete terms to admissions, that's very difficult to say, and it's difficult to say if schools are going to fundamentally change how they might weigh that in the admission process. Computer science major, I mean, if I was going to go down the cliche road, the thing you want to do first and foremost is to prepare academically when you're applying typically to engineering schools to have a very strong math science background. That's more important than volunteering because engineering is requires a lot of work to do well in. So first, your focus should be academic. You shouldn't join something just to join it. Now, at the same time, if you don't have any service of any sort, that might be a red flag to an admission reader. You may join things, and I've certainly seen this from students, who join service projects so it can be listed on the application, but halfway through, it changes them. So is that going to happen to every student? Certainly not, but it certainly can happen. A class can be transformative, so can an activity, and so can a service project. So I'm not saying definitely do it, but if you've never done service before, then I would encourage you to test the waters. You might learn things that you haven't even thought of before, and that could be tutoring. It could be a lot of things. If you're good at, let's say, math and science, then tutoring kids actually will help you learn the material that much more. So investigate what kinds of options that are out there and think seriously about how you might get involved.
0: You know, I loved the frankness in Jack's tone of voice. I'm wondering, is volunteering really all that important? Of course, Jack means, with respect to the college application and admissions process, my response to Jack is, yeah, it is really important in life. It's a good thing. It's, you know, we all need to contribute um, to help others. I mean, that's part of the human experience. That's how... You know, our society works. Um, but to Park's point, do the kind of volunteering that is aligned with who you are and what you're good at and what matters to you. Don't just do some kind of volunteerism because some college out there wishes you had done it. It's just not great to. Craft your life around what some college expects. You know, you want to be yourself. You want to be growing the human that you are. You want to be working harder, working stronger, developing a character. And, um, and service can be an important component of that. All right, Park, thank you for joining me today and throughout this entire school year. Your tips and wisdom reached thousands of listeners and you helped
1: my family too. Well, Julie, I've had. Just a wonderful experience learning from you and from the other experts and from the families and students who have been a part of this whole project. And uh, I'm just grateful to everyone who participated. And it's going to be sad to go on into this. So thanks again.
0: Absolutely. And that's it for today's show. Remember, our next episode will be our last. Hope you'll join us. Listeners. It's your last chance to send us your voice memos and emails. Our email address is slate.com. And you can also leave a voicemail on our hotline. That number is 929-999-4353. You can find us on Twitter. Our handle is at gettinginpod. That's all one word, gettinginpod. Getting In is a production of Slate and Panoply Media. Michelle Siegel is our producer. Our senior producer is Kristen Meinzer. Our executive producer is Laura Mayer, and Panoply's chief content officer is Andy Bowers. Thanks so much for listening. I'm Julie Lifcott-Hames, and remember, it's not just about getting in, it's about finding the right fit. Getting In is sponsored by Audible.com. Audible has more than 180,000 audiobooks. You can download them and access them on a bunch of different devices, on iPhones, Android, Kindle, or pretty much any other MP3 player. One book to try out from Audible is TED Talks, the official TED guide to public speaking by Chris Anderson, the curator of TED. For anyone who has ever been inspired by a TED Talk, Anderson provides an insider's guide to creating talks that are unforgettable. Done right, a talk can electrify a room and transform an audience's worldview. I'm thrilled that I got to give a TED Talk, mentored by Chris Anderson himself, that'll be out this fall. If you want to listen to TED Talks or many other books, Audible has it. Get a free audiobook and 30-day trial today by signing up at www.audible.com slash college. That's A-U-D-I-B-L-E dot com slash college.